Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Julia Chatterley. This new podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal and Scarlet Flew on Bloomberg Television, What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and give you a unique perspective on the week's top stories. And those you may have just missed, it's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. We spoke this week with David Wu, Head of Global Rates and Currencies Research at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Listen to why he's so incredibly bullish on the US dollar. There's already broad agreement on the broad framework for what the US wants and what China is willing to give. I think what they've been negotiating over the last couple of months is really about details. I think the bigger story, just think about this, the overall trade strategy of this administration. Yes. I think, you know, can you believe a year ago that we're literally a week or two from possibly a successful agreement over NAFTA negotiation? I mean, everything we're hearing out of Canada and Mexico is that we're very close to a deal. Do you know what that means? Once Trump gets a deal with Canada and Mexico, I think that will significantly increase his leverage vis-a-vis China. Yes. And given that he's already got a deal with Australia, with Japan, with South Korea, he already has an agreement with half of the TPP countries. From that point of view, they could very well basically pave their way for U.S. entry to TPP. So I would say that in some sense, you know what, there's been overreaction to this whole trade war talk. To me, this has been nothing more than negotiating tactics. And I think things are actually going in a very, very right direction for this country for once. So does the market appreciate the closeness with which you see when you look at how markets are priced? Is that reflected? And B, on the agreement with China, you say we're just negotiating over details at this point. I think some would disagree. Some would say, oh, we're spiraling towards a trade war. So what do you see that looks like a very close agreement? What I see is this, right? I mean, first of all, I think, you know, it's actually very interesting because the issues that Trump has brought up, which is about the force transfer technology, about basically better protecting intellectual property and China opening up basically financial markets for foreign investors. These are things the Chinese have been saying over the last three months that this is something that they would like to do anyway, <laughs> You heard this from the prime minister, you heard it from the president, you heard it from the vice premier. So from that point of view, they've been talking off the same page. Now, of course, you know, when China, if China is going to indeed make a concession, you would think that they want to basically make it look like, you know, basically they're being, they're being, they're being forced to. Yes. (laughs) Because nobody likes to basically make a concession without making a lot of fireworks. Mm. So I think from that point, the fireworks actually ironically makes both sides probably a little bit easier to reach an agreement. It provides them cover, in other words. Exactly. Okay, so it, it's a way to save face and, and make sure that um, you get off the stage gracefully. There were reports that the Chinese would refuse to discuss cutting the trade deficit by $100 billion and changing their goals to dominate certain technologies by a certain period of time. Uh, this was disputed by Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary. Uh, he said the New York Times doesn't know what it's talking about. Having said that, do you think there are any hard red lines for either side that they just won't cross? Listen, 
I think NAFTA is a perfect blueprint about like how this administration approaches trade negotiation, which is with a lot of flexibility, right? Originally, Trump said he wanted whatever, going to 62.5% on the rule of basically uh, country of origin to 85%. Now they're talking about like 75%, maybe even 70%. So from that point of view, I don't think there's any red line. I think this administration, the way they've been going about business is literally, they've been very pragmatic in my view. They make a lot of noise. The noise is, again, it's meant to be intimidating and trying to, whatever, whether it's political cover, whether it is, whatever it is. But I think the fact is that they're making progress on so much, so many different fronts on trade. I think actually, ironically, it's going to put a lot of pressure on the Chinese because they can no longer basically point at the U.S. and say, oh, well, you're being protectionist. But if other countries are finding ways to reach agreement with the U.S., why shouldn't China? And by the way, what's most interesting to me is the fact that Europeans are now basically taking the cue from Trump and calling up Beijing saying, well, I think the U.S. actually has got uh, a pretty a good argument here. <laughs> okay. Yeah. These are issues that Germans have been facing, too. Yeah. I mean, every time German go basically invest in China, they're being forced to basically transfer technology. When China was basically a low-tech producer, it didn't matter. Now China wants to basically become a player in advanced technology. This is not something that anybody can live with. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, Trump has taken the lead. The Europeans are now following his lead. And I think in the end, I think there's good reason to believe there's going to be a reasonably you know, good compromise before the midterm election. Speaking of cover, the Europeans using the United States here as well to negotiate better terms for them. Okay, let me play devil's advocate because you do have a lot of noise around these things. You also got some real hawks there as far as trade is concerned. Robert Lighthizer is one that is involved in both negotiations. And I think there's people in the discussions that are kind of nervous of his approach and how firm he remains even at this point. What's the risk and what's the damage and how does it play out into the markets if in the small window that actually we now have left for particularly the Mexicans to negotiate, NAFTA doesn't get done? I I think, you know, listen, as you know, there's going to be an election in Mexico in July. Yes. Right now, all the polls will suggest that AMLO is going to become the next president. And he has already said on many occasions he would rather walk away from NAFTA than to renegotiate it. This is why the U.S. is under pressure to deliver a deal by the end of this month, because they need to give the Mexican Congress at least a couple of months to pass this into law before the election. Right. So I think the way the U.S. has been going about it, because already, remember, like Trump at one point was asking the impossible. He wanted basically 50% of the cars, basically, you know, that gets actually to be manufactured in the U.S. He already gave that up. Mm-hmm. If you give away that, again, that is showing a tremendous flexibility. This is what I'm most surprised by, that I think the market at least appreciate, which is to what extent if you start following the details of what they've been doing. The U.S. is already backing off on, for example, they wanted to be able to pull out NAFTA any time. That's no longer the discussion. So a lot of things that were sort of redlined, that at the start of the negotiation now being removed because yeah. they're pragmatic because they know they need to get this deal. Yeah, and we haven't heard about the wall in a long time either. <laughs> so what's the trade here? If we get this series of deals, NAFTA, China, half the TPP and so forth, uh, what are the opportunities? Joe, you know what? I'm so incredibly bullish the U.S. dollar. Because let's think about this. I mean, let's think about this for a moment. Right? I'll tell you what's the narrative in the market right now. Yeah. Most clients I talk to, they say, oh, well, you know, Trump is pursuing a, a protectionist agenda. This guy's a warmonger. And on top of that, they say, oh, well, you know, listen, this tax reform, all it is, is a short-term fiscal stimulus that's going to cause the U.S. economy to overheat. That's going to cause the Fed to over-tighten, which then is going to bring on the next recession. There's the reason why the yield curve has been flattening. The market thinks that the recession literally is around the corner. And then meanwhile, the dollar's been going down, down and down, because people say, oh, well, all this tax reform is going to do is basically increase the, trade, the twin deficits. I think that's bullshit. 
I think, actually, the bigger story here is this basically tax reform is engineered, calibrated to boost investment in the United States. By the way, do you know we're now halfway through the first quarter earnings season, mm-hmm. okay, S&P 500 companies. Mm-hmm. Their reported, basically, investment year-on-year growth is currently 27%, yes, which this. is at the highest level, basically, in this, since this recovery. What we're seeing is that finally American companies are putting their money where their mouth is and investing in this country, and this is going to help raise productivity growth, it's going to help raise wage growth, and that's going to be the strongest reason to buy the U.S. dollar. Part of that is that you're bearish on the euro. So let's go through some of the charts and some of the reasons that you outline. The first one is the U.S. has a big interest rate differential with Europe, yet over the past six months, it wasn't really reflected in the euro-dollar pair. If we can pull up that chart, what it shows is the euro just kept strengthening uh, but now you're starting to see that perhaps change a little bit. And I guess the question here is, why was, a break, why was there a breakdown in that correlation that had worked for so long? And if we're seeing a change now, is it for good? What's going on here? I think that's exactly, I think it's a huge, huge conundrum. And this is why a lot of people lost so much money trading FX this year, because most FX guys think, like, well, the only thing that drives FX is basically interest rate differential. Right. When sense. that wasn't working, this is why people basically throw up their hands. I don't know what's happening. I think the reason why that relationship basically broke down was because what I call interest insensitive FX flows that have been weighing on the dollar for the, most of the last year. Two such flows are of particular importance. One, cross-border equity flows. Yes. I don't know if you know this, but last year, okay, we saw massive foreign purchase of European equities, mm-hmm. and we saw no interest whatsoever in U.S. equities whatsoever. And to the extent cross-border equity flows are very seldom currency hedge, that was a huge problem for the dollar vis-a-vis the euro. But in the last three months, the data paint a very clear picture we're starting to see reversal. Money is now coming out of European equities back into U.S. equities. And that's also consistent with the valuation because with the recent equity correction in the U.S., U.S. equities are now less expensive than it was relative to Europe than before. And meanwhile, we're going to see upward revision of long-term growth potential for U.S. earnings, basically outlook. That is very bullish. The other, of course, reserve diversification. I think that's an even bigger story, right? We know that investors have been heading back to emerging markets mm-hmm. over the last year. Mm-hmm. This is leading to rebuild of reserves, and central banks have been buying more and more euros as a result of reserves going up. Mm-hmm. Well, have you seen what's been gone this week? You know, EM's blowing up. You know, Argentina's blowing up. Mm-hmm. Mexico's blowing up. India's blowing up. Turkey, South Africa. You're starting to see, basically, exit from the emerging market. In fact, the last month, we've seen the longest stretch of underperformance of EM equities versus their developed cousins. And I think from that point of view, even with the carry much less attractive EM, you're going to see more outflow. So from that point of view, the rush into EM is out. The rush into European equities out. And I think that removes huge headwind for the U.S. dollar. So just to be clear, we focus so much, or you say traders overly focus on this rate differential. The story that we're going to see now is sort of the relative growth differential. Differential. Rates aside, Europe rolling over in a way that the U.S. is, and it looks like it's not just a sort of weather or temporary thing. Exactly. You know what? Listen, you're exactly right. Until a month ago, if we were having this conversation, you said, well, European data haven't been that great. I would be, even I was sympathetic to the view that it has something to do with the polar vortex. Mm-hmm. that visited Europe basically in March, which wrote record basically temperature you know, across the board. But you know what? April numbers out of Germany and France, the PMI numbers showed that was not much better than April in March. I think that's gone a long way in terms of discrediting the weather is bad story. Instead, I think what is very clear is that the strong euro is starting to basically bite into eurozone growth. This is not to say that Europe is about to collapse. I'm just saying like the loss of momentum 
Basically, European growth that we've seen in the last three months can be very well explained by the euro appreciation over the past year. And in fact, the lead-like relationship between the two will suggest that this weakness is likely to persist. And by the way, I was in Paris last week. Mm-hmm. I can tell you, it was not a pretty sight. Air France is on strike. SNCF, the railroad workers on strike. The teachers on strike. Okay, the lawyers on strike. Even the students on strike because Macron is trying to introduce a new admission process for universities. The French like striking, though. You might say, well, the French always on strike. But yes and no, because the last year, as you know, Mr. Macron has been in this honeymoon period with his unions. Mm -hmm. But now it almost seems like he's bet more than he can choose by taking on all the vested interests. And these, by the way, strikes only began in in April. And they're open-ended strikes. And then the history of French politics tells us that, you know, it's very difficult for him to make concession to one without concession to everybody. Right. And this is one I think, you know, I think Eurozone growth is set to slow, probably continue to slow in the second quarter. And to be fair to him, this is what scotched him under Hollande as well, trying to do greater uh, reform as far as the labour market is concerned. But I want to go back to what you said about emerging markets and what's going on there, because you cited this as one of the big drivers here as well. What's going on with EM? Because you go back even just a month ago and people were saying, you know, this is going to be resilient in a rate tightening cycle. There's huge opportunity here. The fundamentals are better. They can withstand tightening better than they did in the in the last cycle in particular. What suddenly happened as far as emerging markets are concerned that everyone's heading for the exit? And do they come back? And what problem is that then for the call? That's exactly because this whole emerging market has everything to do with this decoupling between the dollar interest rate differential, right? I've always said, you know what? Emerging markets can cope with somewhat higher U.S. rates, but emerging markets will really struggle to, to cope with higher rates and higher U.S. dollar. This is why all of a sudden Euro dollar just by breaking through 120, all of a sudden everybody's rushing for the exit in emerging markets because the higher dollar is probably a much more, I think, dangerous aspect for basically emerging markets. So let's talk about one of those emerging markets. We mentioned the China and U.S. trade negotiations. Let's look at Chinese outflows. You're saying those are set to increase, and that has been a driver of dollar strength in the past. We actually have one of your charts that you brought to us. Um, and, and what it shows is the sensitivity of Chinese capital flows to interest rate differentials between, say, China and the U.S. or China and the rest of the world. Talk about how this is going to work and contribute to a weaker euro, a stronger dollar. Exactly. If you recall, in 2015, okay, Chinese growth slowed so much that the Chinese started to cut interest rates, mm-hmm. whereas the Fed started to hike interest rates. As a result, interest rate differential moved dramatically in favor of the U.S. against the RMB. And in the consequent 18 months, we saw a trillion dollars leaving China. Okay? And that was the reason why the dollar staged a massive rally pretty much across the board. Now, last year, even though the Chinese growth was slowing, the Chinese nevertheless tried to match the Fed hikes because they were trying to protect the RMB. This is why the dollar still did okay. The RMB still did okay. But guess what? The deleveraging effort in China is actually intensifying. Mm -hmm. Chinese growth is slowing. There's no question about that. Therefore, the ability to match further Fed hikes from here is very, very limited. This is why, if you recall, last week they even cut triple R. Uh-huh. which is a sign that they're easy monetary condition. So from that point of view, as interest rate differential moves in favor of the dollar once again, you're going to have to assume that the risk of outflows from China is going to increase later this year. What's the big risk to your call here and your enthusiasm as far as the dollar? <laughs> Sorry, I have to pop the bubble. <laughs> no, I think, you know, listen, I mean, if, you know, I, I, think, I think there's no question, okay, if this whole trade negotiation with China were to really blow up, for whatever reason, yeah. this will definitely, I think, be a problem, mm-hmm. okay? But then again, you know what? If that's a problem, that may be a problem for my dollar call, but that will be an even bigger problem for emerging markets. Mm. 
You see what I'm saying? So emerging markets will be vulnerable either way. Right. So does the dollar smile then in that situation? Certainly against emerging markets, I would argue very much so. We also spoke with Stephen Englander, head of research and strategy at Rafiki Capital. He told us the market was too pessimistic over the winter, and now we're unwinding some of that pessimism. I think there's nothing to stop the dollar from from going up. I I think what we're seeing is the Fed constantly reiterating its bullishness on the economy and its its bullishness on rate hikes. Um, You know, the data of Europe has been soft. I think the market is... I, I don't think the underlying European economy is as soft as the data makes it out to be. <laughs> but, but I think that for now, what we're seeing is the market uh, you know, beginning to set aside the geopolitical issues that constantly haunted the dollar last year and the first couple of months of this year. And for once, actually focusing on, on what the Fed is doing and, and what the economy is doing. Uh, Stephen, as you said, there's really nothing to indicate that the Fed is going to slow down or uh, sort of reduce its estimate of the economy. But we kind of keep getting disappointed on the uh, inflation front. The wage data last week was fine, but nothing special. Does there what do you, a what do you make of the wage data that we've seen lately? And B, does there come a point where if inflation doesn't really gather steam, that there could that we could see a sort of a rethink on the part of the Fed? Well, I, you know, I, I think the, the wage data last month in particular was held down by a couple of special factors, and it's not as weak as it's made out. Mm. Um, and I, I, again, you wouldn't be, you know, there are very good things happening in the economy. The, the fact that we are seeing so many minority workers hired is, you know, tremendous and, and tremendous, you know, socially tremendous economically. Uh, but they get paid uh, 75 cents on the dollar relative to the average. So they're holding down the pace of wage inflation because the hiring that we're seeing is kind of at the low end of the wage scale, not at the high, high end. Talk to me about the market reaction that we saw in light of the last Fed meeting, because we saw a, a sort of shift as far as the growth outlook is concerned, at least in the mind of investors. We also saw the addition of the symmetric word here, too. So at this point in the business cycle, how sensitive should they be, to, to Joe's point, as far as inflation is concerned, considering perhaps the risk to the downside at this point in the cycle outweigh the risks to the upside? You know, I think that the, um, they're paying too much attention to inflation. I, I think the Fed is sending a signal that they're going to be tolerant yes. of higher inflation. And I, I think there's a case that says, look, if, if you actually think, you know, there are exogenous factors, the age of the business cycle, the fact that, you know, everybody's bought their cars and, and we've had eight years to buy the capital equipment that the odds are, you know, that we have enough of that stuff. If, if you think that a downturn is coming, um, the Fed has like one percent of disinflation in his pocket. You, you have to let it overshoot in order to have to, the downside yeah. protection. In and, and, and you can ask the question, if we had a downturn tomorrow, um, you know, where would inflation end up? We'd be back at 1.3, 1.5 before, before we knew it. And yes. I, so I think that the Fed really needs this buffer if, if they actually want to, to average 2% over the cycle. Yes. 
Stephen, you made a really interesting point in a note uh, of yours after the last Fed decision, which is that sometimes people are under the mistaken impression that the Fed has an extra crystal ball about the economy or that they have more data than everyone else has, and so they know more. Can you explain that? What is this sort of analytical error you see people making regarding the Fed? Look, you know, I'd say that 98% of Fed forecasts are based on the same economic data that we have. And having once been the New York Fed's forecaster, like a long time ago, um, I can tell you it was not much better than anybody in the market. And I, I think the, the you know, it, it's not like there's, um, you know, all these Fed economists and they have a multiple of the data that the, the economy has. They look at exactly the same data that everyone else does. They have very similar models to what the major houses use. Um, there's just not that much more information in, in what they're saying. And, and you can take a look at some of the econometric models, the very technical econometric models that they use to take all the incoming data, the quarterly numbers, the, the, the monthly, even some you know, weekly numbers, and come up with a forecast. And their forecast can diverge by one and a half percentage points. So it, it tells you that it's hard to forecast the economy, mm-hmm. not that if you add another dozen economists using the same data that you're going to get a better forecast. Funny that. Mm-hmm. Just a big picture. Do you see anything in the uh, domestic economy right now that concerns you about slowdown or in terms of uh, the sort of steady state that we're in? Is it just going to continue? Look, I I think that the market was too pessimistic over the winter for like the fifth winter in a row. And I I think that now we're unwinding that pessimism. So so I think that's fine. I, I would say that the biggest risk to the dollar coming back to the dollar for a second, mm-hmm. going ahead, is if we're actually, or if I'm actually wrong, and it turns out that the economy is slowing down and we come to a business cycle end, either because there's a lot of inflation and the Fed has to tighten really uh, rapidly, or because the economy is just falling apart, um, I think the market would look beyond you know, the, the short-term implications and say, well, pretty soon we're going to have a Fed that's easing. And I think that the, the, you know, the one question you want to ask yourself before you buy or sell dollars is, do I think the business cycle is going to end anytime soon? If the answer is yes, you should be a dollar seller. If you think the business cycle can continue, then you should be a dollar buyer because the, it means that the, the, you know, the forces that uh, Powell keeps talking about, the you know, tightening rates, interest rate differentials, those are going to continue to favor the U.S. Stephen, you mentioned in a note recently the international financial system acts in really funny ways. And I couldn't agree more as far as the behavior of the U.S. dollar is concerned and the impact that it has on whether it's foreign earnings or whether it has uh, the impact that it has on exports. How tied is it? How good is it, actually, the weak dollar is a boost for, for U.S. exports? I, I, if you're talking about export volumes, actually production, yes. um, in the short term, it's a very weak tool. It has, the dollar has to be weak for a number of years before it has uh, a discernible impact. Mm. Uh, what it does do immediately is juice up earnings because of translation effects. And, but that doesn't create jobs. It just makes uh, shareholders happy. But <laughs> it's, it's something, but it's, you know, it, I don't think it's as strong a tool as, as advertised. So if you're talking about a sell-off in the dollar or weakness mm. in the dollar in order to provide a real kicker and have an impact on trade, because we do come back to the U.S. dollar when we're talking about trade policy and very clearly very critical for the United States right now. 
how relevant is it at current levels and what do we need to see in order to boost? It has to go a mile, it has to go quickly and it has to stay there. So, so going from 120 to 140 will make a difference and you'll see the difference two or three years down, yeah. down the road. But you know, to argue that all that it takes, if, if only we could go from um, you know, 120 to 125, we'd be home free. That's ridiculous. You, you won't even notice it in the sec- second decimal point of GDP growth. Stephen, does that apply to other major currencies? I'm thinking about the euro and one of the popular theories being that the strong euro earlier this year has contributed to some of the modest uh, economic deceleration there. Um, but it doesn't necessarily sound like that would fit with the story you tell about major currencies. You know, look, I, I think it um, applies to the euro to a slightly greater degree because Europe is, is a you know, somewhat more open economy than the U.S., or the Eurozone is a somewhat more open economy than the U.S. But by and large, it's, it's the, the same. I mean, if you look at how many airplanes they sell and, you know, how long it takes for that, you know, uh, benefit to actually show up in, in terms of production, it, it, takes a, it really takes a long time. I, I think it's something that's visible. And, and, again, if you're a worker, it sounds good that it says you're, you're more competitive. But the translation of that competitiveness into boots and factories is way less than, you know, conventionally thought. Mm. Stephen, how concerned should people be about some of these increasing stories about uh, pressure rising in various emerging markets, whether it's what we're seeing in Argentina over the last couple of weeks, the Turkish lira hitting a record low? Is there something bubbling in emerging markets that's sort of bigger and macro, or is this just sort of, you know, isolated stories that are, are distinct and localized? Well, right now, I think these are the very weak hands in the EM that are, are getting hurt. Um, and which is kind of the good news that it doesn't seem to be across the board in any degree of intensity. Um, I, I think the bad news is that it's happening at such a low level of rates when, mm. you know, the, you know, as Powell and the Fed have clearly signaled there's more to go. And so I think that we could see more pressure down the road. I, I think this is the, um, this late stage of the business cycle is probably when you want to see a weaker dollar. If, you know, looking at it as a global issue, that the, what you don't want to see is higher rates, um, you know, translating into you know pressure on indebted countries and, and countries that have weak current account positions, which is what often happens at the end of, uh, or in, in mature business cycles. So um, we, we could get further bad news, I think, if, if the you know if, if the dollar continues to, to strengthen. That said, I, I think if the business cycle really extends, um, equities are probably underpriced, not, you know, not overpriced right now. And that improvement in, in equity sentiment would spill over, I think, into other high beta assets. But I think right now we're serving the situation where the market's not uh, convinced about equities uh, and they see rates going up and, and they see the vulnerabilities and they're, they're you know, selling as much as they can. But if you're right on your underlying thesis as far as the business cycle is concerned and the economy, then EM ultimately presents an opportunity and so does equities too. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and, and again, it, it, we, we don't have very good supply side data, so we don't know yes. whether productivity is picking up, whether the investment you know, is, is picking up and will have a discernible impact. But if it does to extend the cycle, um, that's the good news story that's not priced in right now. And Ken Rickey, chairman of FlexJet, joined to discuss why he thinks that private aviation pilots employed by FlexJet 
would be better off without a union. You know, we're not an airline. We, we, our, our pilots are intimately involved with our passengers. So we have that, we have a service of, of culture that we have to permeate, number one. Number two is that we're a management team that manages very much by trust. And we like the relationship to be direct with management and with its employees. And in fact, we've operated in that mode for many years. I'm a pilot by background. I relate well to the pilots. I can fly in their shoes and walk in their shoes. So this union has been in existence now within the company for two years. How has life changed as a result of that two-year period when it's been unionized? Has that created tensions and, and actually have the pilots been worse off as a result in your well, view? Well, what, what happened was that the, we merged two companies together. Yes. One company was unionized and one was not. Mm. And by law, then they have to have a vote. And that vote was a very, very narrow vote in favor of, of, of keeping the union. So now two years have gone by and there's not a lot of change. In fact, um, the way the rules worked is a part of the company where pilots were what's called our red label program mm. they were sub they were outside of the contract and we were allowed to change their compensation at will and those pilots are the highest paid pilots in the industry oh. right now so what you have is an issue where management when they could deal directly with the pilots brought them very high compensation and the ones who were bound by the union are now on the low compensation so there's a little bit of, 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 of the financial issue that's playing out so could you say then that if the pilots were to decertify and to not be part of the union that their pay would increase? Well, they're already the highest paid in the industry. And one of the things we're not allowed to promise to, no. to what happens in the case a union goes away. Uh, you could see, though, we have throughout our history, we've always said that since our, our customers are the premium customers, they're the highest net worth people, we cannot fly the highest net worth people with low paid pilots just by demand of what our customer base wants. You start off by saying you're not an airline, so I'm sure you can understand um, at four airlines, why pilots would want to be in a union because they need some kind of protection. Talk about the distinction between being a pilot in a union for an airline versus at your company. Well, the, the biggest distinction would be, for instance, a pilot at our company would fly one airplane and one airplane alone. He'd be on the same airplane day in and day out when he flies, mm -hmm. and he'd have a mirror crew when he's not on the plane. In the airline, you go to a different plane, you get a different uh, serial number when you go to fly every day. It's much more regimented. You fly the same routes. You fly from Cleveland to Chicago to Cleveland to Chicago. We're going to much more random locations. Our pilots are being fall to bring a lot more judgment into call when they're, when they're having to make their decisions, and they need the interaction. It doesn't work as well with an intermediary. You see, a cynic, and, and the unions would point to this and say, look, as you've just said, those that aren't in the union are now getting paid more than those that are. Yes. And they would argue that that that's kind of a blatant attempt by you to break the union because you're, you're favoring the ones that aren't unionized. How do you argue against that? Well, well, that would be true if it wasn't in place before the union showed up. See, that those, right. those high-paid pilots were there before the union even got there. And so, uh, so we, our, our habit of how we wanted to compensate pilots been, hasn't been imagined because of, this, because of what's going on with the decertification. So being in a union hasn't hurt them, in a sense, in your eyes and with your willingness to negotiate? No, I don't, it hasn't hurt them at all. Uh, what we really want is I think we're trying to build a culture with trust. And if you were to think about having a family and trying to every time you wanted to create this trust amongst your family, Numbers, but you couldn't because you always had to go through a third party. Mm. That's that's the, that's what we're striving to give. We want to get back to that kind of a culture. I hear what you're saying about building a culture of trust, and in fact, uh, there have been law professors that say that companies such as FlexJet have a constitutional right to express anti-union views. However, the National Mediation Board um, also.
also pointed out that a firm can unduly influence or interfere with or coerce employees in lead up to a vote. How do you draw the line there between maintaining trust but not going too far over the line? Well, what I would say is that we as a management, as a leadership team, have have pretty much operated the same with or without the union. We have operated uh, with our pilots in the exact same manner while the union was there. So this has gone on well before we let up just to this point in time. That's how I would say it. Do you expect some kind of legal action if indeed the union lose the vote? Um, look, this is, a, this is a big event. This has never happened before. Yes. We've never decertified a pilot's union, in, 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 um, and it's big. And, and people want to say that it can force, uh, it'll, it'll be something else that'll happen throughout the industry. Which is what they are saying. I don't think so, because I think the airline jobs that where most of the pilot's unions are at uh, have a different mission than we do. But, but suffice to say that if we win, I would imagine there's a lot of people that line up legally behind it to try to take change the momentum. And just to be clear, you're not giving any advantage to the pilots that are trying to break this union versus the pilots that are within this union, even in the campaign process, because they've also accused, the Teamsters have accused you of giving those guys unfair advantage in this process as well. Well, we don't really even know who they are, because that's all, the, when, when you apply for decertification, it's done in secret, and we don't know who the pilots are. We just know that more than 50% of your group had to sign a petition or the MMB wouldn't have heard the decertification. Talk about your uh, business more generally. I want to end on a positive note okay, here yes, because yes, you yes, are yes. expanding all over the world. Yes, and it's yes. a pretty exciting time as well. Uh -huh. So talk to us about the company specifically and what you're doing here. Well, we became we became a 10-year exclusive uh, operator with Gulfstream and now we uh, and now we operate uh, we're going into the international markets and uh, the world's becoming more global and I would tell you that uh, 5 years ago our average flight maybe was uh, New York it was a 2 hour flight. Now we're averaging 6 and 7 hours. Wow. And people are flying much longer distances. It's a sign of affluence and a rising economy. And I think global economies. I think yes. this is, people are doing more, more global work. I wonder, though, that with the tax change, the tax overhaul, whether that's Ooh. changed anything for how your clients uh, use private jets. Um, I, I, so there's pluses and minuses to the tax overhaul. The, the accelerated appreciation certainly makes you buy the airplane more. Mm -hmm. it, it's more advantageous to buy it, and that is an advantage to our clients. And what's the downside? Well, the downside is that uh, that certain of the rules and regulations as to how you could use the airplane have been mm. tightened up. Uh -huh. Okay, so for instance, uh, you can use the airplane now if uh, when you're not going between offices or sales, mm -hmm. if you're if you're um, if you're in a, in a fear of safety situation. And before those rules were much that. more expansive. That's it for What You Missed This Week. Make sure to subscribe and rate the show whenever you listen to our podcast. And a reminder to tune into our daily show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.